0: Well, we welcome those of you who are joining us online and also those of you who are gathered here at Central Campus, along with all the rest of you who are meeting at one of our other campuses in Airdrie and Bridgeland, Bearspaw, and also South Calgary. Now, if you're new to our church, uh, I just want you to know that we mostly teach through the books of the Bible. And this past year, we have been uh, making our way through the, the book of Exodus from the Old Testament and the book of Romans from the New Testament. A little bit of the old and a little bit of the new, a great way to study the Bible. Well, today the scripture passage that we're focusing on is Romans 12, verses 3 to 8. So I'm going to invite you to open your Bible or your Bible app to that particular chapter. Now, some time ago, a middle-aged man approached me And he said, Pastor, I hear a lot of talk these days about significance and about leaving a legacy. He said, I've attended the funeral of a friend recently, and I was moved by all of the good things people said about him and all the things he had accomplished over his lifetime. And to be honest, I left the funeral just a bit troubled because I realized there isn't all that much that I've accomplished that I'd be remembered for. Well, we talked about a number of things. But one of the things I said to him is, you know that Jesus taught that when we die, it isn't going to really matter what people say about us. What's going to matter is what God says about us. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said, what good will it be For someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul. All of us have a deep desire for significance. But we tend to look for it in all the wrong places. We try to find it through the temporary things of life. Things like power or position or possessions or pleasure or the love of friends and family. The only problem is none of these last. One day, friends and loved ones are going to leave you in death or you're going to leave them in death. And I know that that, that is kind of depressing to think about, but it's true. The fact is in a hundred years, few people will remember that you even existed, much less the things that you accomplished. I mean, if you don't believe me, Let me ask you, how many of you could tell me the name of your great-great-grandfather? I rest my case. (laughs) Now, all of that to say this, true lasting significance and fulfillment cannot be found by pursuing your agenda and the temporary things of life. It can only be found by pursuing God by knowing Him and living out His agenda in your life. In John uh, Job chapter 12, we read this. In God's hand is the life of every creature and the breath of all mankind. This passage reminds us that every heartbeat and every breath is a gift of God. We were created to worship and to glorify God and not to glorify ourselves 1 Corinthians 10:31 Paul writes this now whether you eat or drink or whatever it is you do do it all for the glory of God This is the pathway to true and lasting significance and fulfillment. And the scripture passage that we're looking at today is going to help us understand what it means to worship God and to glorify him. So I'm going to invite you to stand as we read a portion of this passage together. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, Do not think yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Let us pray. Lord, again, we thank you for this Uh, amazing and wonderful book and all that we've already learned going through it and Lord I ask now that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive what it is you want us to understand and to learn and then Lord help us to not just hear but Lord to respond by doing what it is you're calling us to do for I pray it all in the precious name of Jesus amen may be seated Now, as I said a moment ago, in the passage we just read, but also in the rest of this chapter, Paul spells out how we glorify God with our lives and how in doing so, we will experience true and lasting um, significance and fulfillment in life. First of all, we glorify God when we surrender our lives and our bodies to him. Look at verse 1, therefore I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Now surrender is an unpopular word because it implies losing and it also kind of implies going into bondage and no one wants to be a loser or be in bondage. We would rather talk about winning and succeeding than about submitting and surrendering. And yet Paul reminds us that we're not surrendering ourselves to a tyrant. We're not surrendering ourselves to a bully. No, we're surrendering ourselves to Jesus, who's our lover and our liberator. When we surrender to him, we are not Put into bondage no we're actually set free from the bondage of sin and regrets and bitterness and hurt he sets us free from those things notice Paul says I urge you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice he doesn't say I command you to do so he's saying don't surrender your life to God out of this sense of duty or legalism but out of, a, out of sheer gratitude and love for what Christ did for us on the cross of Calvary and a deep trust that His way is the only way to live and to experience life to the full. Friends, nothing pleases God more than when we decisively offer our life and our body to him, When we say, Lord, I'm completely yours, my life, the gifts and talents that I have, my money, everything I give to you, I hold with an open hand. So the first and foremost way to glorify God is to surrender your life and your body to Jesus Christ. A second way to glorify God um, is to embrace the mind and the way of Christ. Look at verse 2. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So what is the pattern of the world? Well, the pattern of this world is to reject God. It is to see yourself as the center of the universe. You've probably noticed that as our culture continues to drift away from God and reject Him, our culture is becoming increasingly narcissistic, self-centered. We're seeing it everywhere. And that's what happens when you paint God out of the picture. And so, what the pattern of this world is all about is focusing on yourself, on your happiness, on advancing yourself On you being right and getting all that you can for yourself. And Paul says, don't conform to that. Don't give your mind or your body over to that way of thinking and that way of living. Rather, glorify God by renewing your mind or in computer terms, by reprogramming your mind with the mind and the way of Christ. So what does it mean to have the mind of Christ? Well, to have the mind of Christ means you look at life the way that Jesus does. And If you want to know what that's all about, get in the scriptures and you'll get to know Jesus really well. To have the mind of Christ means that you believe this world is not your permanent home. You're just passing through. To have the mind of Christ means that you realize how temporary all the things that we seek after and in some cases sell our soul for really are. To have the mind of Christ means you realize that one day all the trophies and all the stuff of this world are going to burn. And only what's done in Jesus' name and for his glory is going to last. Paul writes, when you put God's agenda and the concerns of other people ahead of your own, you are glorifying and worshiping God big time. And then thirdly, you also glorify God when you see yourself the way that Jesus sees you. Look at verse 3. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Now, pride can reveal itself in two ways. The most common way is when a person thinks too highly of themselves. We think too highly of ourselves when we talk a lot about our abilities or our accomplishments or when we think we can do everything or when we believe that what we do is more important than what other people do. Now, such an attitude not only creates division and much hurt uh, between people in the church and elsewhere, but people usually avoid those. You've probably noticed this. They usually avoid those who think they're God's gift to humanity. Now, another way that pride comes out is a person who thinks uh, too little of themselves. They think too little of their gifts, too little of what they're capable of contributing. They believe that they aren't worthy to do something because uh, th- uh, they, they think they, they aren't good enough or they aren't righteous enough or because they aren't qualified or talented enough. And you see, Satan just loves to throw that kind of stuff at us because he just wants to take us out of the action. Just don't believe him. Well, in both cases, the issue is pride. Pride. Because whether you think that you're the best or whether you think, you know, that you're the worst, where's the focus? It's still on you. Pride, Paul writes here, we need to think of ourselves with sober judgment. Now the Greek word that's used here for sober judgment is one that's used in reference to the writing of wills. When someone made out their will, they would say, as I write this, I am of sound mind. And so what Paul is saying here is, if you think of yourself more highly than you should, it could, it could well be that you're not of sound mind. You're not thinking accurately or realistically. You're not in touch with reality. Because you're thinking you are someone that you're not. So what does it mean to think of ourselves with sober judgment? Well, first of all, it means to see ourselves the way Jesus sees us, which is what Paul describes to us in the first 11 chapters of Romans that we've just looked at. And I'm going to summarize those 11 chapters in about 45 seconds flat. So to see ourselves as Christ sees us means I know that without Christ and what he did for me, I am spiritually dead and I am lost and I'm the object of God's judgment and wrath with no hope of spending eternity with God in heaven. That's Romans 1 to 3. But when I put my trust in Jesus and what he did for you and me on the cross of Calvary, I am now totally forgiven and righteous and accepted in the eyes of God, not because of anything that I have done, but because, uh, and, and not because I live perfectly in this life, but because in the spiritual realm I am in Jesus Christ and he is perfect and righteous in the sight of God. And the awareness of all that Christ did for me and how utterly lost and condemned I would be without him reminds me that not a one of us has any basis for self-righteous pride. Now furthermore, to think of ourselves with sober judgment means we accept what we can do and we also accept what we cannot do. I may want to sing in the choir or on a worship team really badly. But if I cons- consistently sing badly and I sing off even though I've taken lessons, I need to accept it. And instead of getting all upset with myself or getting angry at others for loving me, lovingly helping me to see the truth about my giftedness, or lack thereof. I need to embrace the truth that my real value is not based on what others think about me, but on who I am in Jesus Christ. And instead... And and instead of seeking, you know, gifts that others have and that others admire. I need to lead into the abilities and the gifts that God has given to me. Even if I think my gifts aren't as spectacular as I'd like them to be. And so you glorify God when you see yourself the way Jesus sees you. And then fourthly, you glorify God when you use your gifts to encourage the body of Christ. There are no lone lone rangers in the Christian life. We do not live on an island unto ourselves as Christians. God intended for us to depend on each other and to need each other. Look at verse four. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not have the same function, So in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Paul gives us an anatomy lesson here, comparing the church body to our physical body. And this is a powerful analogy, folks. Now, when you stand in front of the mirror and you look at your body, you will notice that your body is divided into two major sections. There's the head and there's the torso. The head is the control center of the body and that represents Jesus Christ. The torso is the biggest part to which the members, the legs and the arms are attached, which represents Christ's body, the church, which is us, not the organized church, so to speak. I'm talking about the people of the church. So when we talk about the body of Christ, we're talking about us as a church. This is how the Lord intended the church to function. We are part of Christ, the head. I mean, did you get that? We are part of Jesus Christ. We are the means through which he functions in the world. Now, he could have chosen to do it all himself. He doesn't need us. But he has chosen to do his kingdom work through us. We are his lips, we're his hands, we're his feet, and so forth. Now Paul says, the church operates like a physical body in the following ways. First of all, every Christ follower has at least one spiritual gift. Look at verse 6. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. In the same way that every part of our physical body has an important role to play. So every Christian has an important role to play. If you're a Christ follower, then you have at least one spiritual gift and that means that you're responsible to use it. If you don't, the church will not be all that Christ intended it to be. God gave me my gifts, not for me, but to bless and minister to you and to others. In the same way, God gave you your gift, not for the advancement of your ego, but rather he gave it to you to bless and to minister to me and to others. If I don't exercise my gift, you lose out. And if, I, and if you don't exercise yours, I lose out. Secondly, God is the one who has distributed these gifts. Verse 6 says this, we have different gifts according to the grace given to us. Now we don't choose our gifts any more than we choose our siblings. Our spiritual gift is given to us by the Spirit of God. We may want a certain gift because, like I said earlier, we, we may like the adoration Uh, certain people with that gift tend to get. But the Spirit of God distributes the gifts as He wishes. He gives us gifts not to draw attention to ourselves, but to glorify Him and to build up the church, to build up one another. And then thirdly, every Christ follower has a different role, and that role is important. Not all of us have the same gifting, and you know that's a really good thing. I mean, can you imagine if all of us were only a tongue? It' be a lot of talking. Just wouldn't be a lot of action. Thankfully, God uses us differently, and every gift is important, just like every part of our physical body is important. Again, notice in verse five, Paul says, "In Christ, we, though many, form one body." and each member belongs to all the others. That means that you're needed and you're as important as I or anyone else is. Some members of the body are bigger and more obvious. Some are less obvious. I have a hand, and that's obvious. But I also have a liver. That's less obvious. And yet, Which is more important in my life? Well, obviously, it's the liver. So visible, upfront gifts, though important, are not always more important than the the behind-the-scenes gifts. But here's the thing. God designed, designed you to make a unique contribution. Without you, the picture isn't complete. You see, when God wants to care for His body, the church... He often uses members of the church to do that. And when you disconnect yourself from the church, you cut yourself off from the provision and the power of God and what he wants to do for you through other members of the church. Just this past week, I heard yet again another story of a person who was in desperate need for help. And God used various people who are part of our church to meet that need. You know, from time to time, I talk to people who who see no need to be engaged in the local church. They say, well, I'm just part of the universal church. But you see, that mindset is not taught in the scriptures. The New Testament knows nothing about the believer being disconnected from the local church. The New Testament knows nothing about private spirituality. Every time the church is mentioned in the New Testament, over 90% of the time, it is referring to the local church, not the universal church. Make no mistake, God has designed His church So that we need each other. And even though we may think. We don't need the church to grow. In our friendship with Jesus. Our spiritual growth as Christians. Will be severely hindered. Without deep and meaningful relationships. And involvement. With other Christians in the church. I mean look again at. This illustration of the body. That Paul uses. The church is a body made up of many important members that are vital to the body's health. If all those body parts are spread out all over the place and disconnected, well, it's not only gross, but we know there's no life there. The only way that a member of the body can survive and carry out its purpose is to be attached to the body. Let me give you a personal illustration of that. Most of you know that I'm missing a finger. And those of you who didn't know that, well, now you do. (laughs) When I'm speaking to new people in other places and so forth, inevitably, someone will notice that I'm missing a finger. And the reaction is always the same. There's this initial look of shock, a bit of a contorted face. And then the person will lean over and share, you know, he's missing a finger. And then that person will stare down my arm trying to find out which one it is. (laughs) And then once they spot it, they go through the same shock and contorted face and then they lean over and and you just see it go down the row. (laughs) Now, even though I would love to have, you know, I'd love to have my finger back, I've come to appreciate a number of benefits that come with missing your middle finger. And it's probably not what some of you are thinking, but <laughs> but let me uh, <laughs> but but let me uh, just point one of them out to you, and that is, you know, I am capable of 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 making a perfect you. I love you. Now, you see, you can't do that. I mean, you can do a V, but you can't do a U. But here's the thing. What happens to a body part that gets cut off from the body? It dies. It can no longer function the way that God intended it to function. It has lost its purpose. Do you hear that, folks? It's lost its purpose. That is not what God has in mind for us, his spiritual children. When Paul says in verse 5 that each member belongs to all the others, he's saying that we know each other well enough that we're there for each other and care for one another. I remember years ago, I fell and twisted my ankle really badly. And, and I was convinced it was broken. And, and I, you know, it swelled up. And it was so painful that the rest of my body sat up all night just to keep it company. <laughs> That's a picture of how Jesus wants his church to function. And then fourthly, every Christ follower must keep their eyes on Jesus. Can you imagine how uncoordinated and ridiculous a body would function if it had two minds giving orders to the same body? In the church body, Christ is the head of the church, He's the head of life. And if you cut off the head, life is gone, direction is gone. And the same is true in the church. In John 15, verse 5, Jesus said, I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I remain in you, you will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from Christ, we really can't do anything of spiritual significance. That is why it is so essential that we are not only connected to one another in community, but also why we are connected and totally surrendered to our head, Jesus Christ. Everything needs to come from him. As long as we try to control certain parts of our lives and allow other things to control us, we will not see the mighty power of God work in us or through us. As members of Christ's body, we are not to do our own thing. No. We're to do the will of God. The arm does not have one will, you know, the foot another and the eye still another. I mean, can you imagine your foot always kicking the other foot or your hand slapping your face? I shouldn't have done that. That hurt. But <laughs> slapping your face. But what that's what happens. In the church when members grow self-centered. When it's all about me. When it's what I want. Rather than staying focused on Jesus and his call on our lives. Philippians 2.3 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Our Lord wants us to admire the gifts that others have that we don't have. Not in the sense of worshiping those gifts. But no, just honoring and encouraging the people who bring those unique gifts to the life of the church. But you see, when people take their eyes off Jesus and they begin to focus on their own selfish ambitions, they often become envious of others. They become jealous of the gifts of others. And they will slander them. And they will seek to undermine them In other subtle ways. Which is not only a sin. Which grieves the Lord. But also greatly damages. And distorts. What he wants his church to be. The truth is. It is possible for the body. To be so remarkably coordinated. Only because. It is directed by one will. And that is the mind and the will. Of our Lord. And that's why. If we're going to live a victorious Christian life and see the church be all that God wants it to be, we must surrender every area of our lives to the head of the church, Jesus Christ. Now, Paul goes on in verse 7 and 8 to give seven examples of spiritual gifts. And that's only a partial list of the gifts. You, You find others in 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Peter 4 and also in Ephesians 4. But here in verse 7 and 8, Paul says, if your gift is prophesying, in other words, if you have the ability to move the heart and the will of people by making the Bible come alive for them, or if you have a word of encouragement or exhortation that the Spirit gives you for someone else, and you give it in a spirit of humility, and in alignment with the Scriptures, not contrary to the Scriptures, then use that gift to the glory of God. If you have the gift of serving, then bless the body of Christ by serving and helping whenever and wherever you can. If you have the gift of teaching, then teach one-on-one, teach a small group, of children, youth, or adults, or larger groups, as God opens doors in and in accordance with the measure of grace you have received from God. If you have the gift of encouragement, if you just love to come alongside people and comfort them and build them up and urge them to keep on keeping on, then please glorify God by encouraging others. If you have the gift of giving, then give abundantly and cheerfully in proportion to how God has blessed you. If you have the gift of leadership, then lead diligently and faithfully. And if you have the gift of mercy, if you delight in helping those who tend to be neglected or marginalized by others, then do it cheerfully as unto the Lord. And you see, the point that Paul is making in those two verses is use the gift or the gifts that God has given to you. You see, church, God did not save us to sit, either in person or online. He saved us to serve. Yes, we're saved by grace through faith in what God has done alone. Ephesians 2:8 and 9 clearly states that our salvation is a gift. We can't earn it, we can't work for it. We can only put our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so to be clear, we don't serve in order to be saved. We serve because we are saved. Jesus didn't save us just to come together like this to sing some worship songs and to listen to a sermon, as important as these are. No, he saved us also to serve one another and others who need the Lord in their lives. And make no mistake, that is what authentic worship is. When we live out what we hear taught today, that is what truly glorifies and pleases our Lord. Okay, so are you still with me? At this point, I figure most of you are asking one of two questions. Some of you who I lost about 20 minutes ago You're thinking, you know, is he done yet? Well, I could end right now. But you see, also, I'm figuring there's some of you who've been tracking with me. And who, by the way, are my favorite people. (laughs) And you're asking, well, pastor, please don't leave us hanging. How do I discern what my spiritual gift is? Well, we offer a class that addresses that. And if you're interested, you can email learning at cschurch.ca, which you see on the screen in front of you. But here are three questions that may help you discover your spiritual gift. Question number one, what are you passionate about? What makes you pound your fist on the desk and say, I can't stand it anymore. Someone has to meet that need. That's probably a clue. As to what your calling is and also what your gift is. When you're serving in your calling and gifting, you're not only gonna be passionate, but you will feel like you're doing what you were made to do. Question number two What are you good at? You may have to develop your gift, but somewhere along the line, you're gonna find that you're pretty good at certain things. And one way you'll know this is you'll see God use you. To make a difference in some way. Question number three. Do others genuinely affirm your gift? God can use people in the church. You see, this is where the body works together. He can use people, godly people in the church to see what you can't see. Some godly people will see strengths in you that you may not even know you have. On the other hand, God will also use godly people who lovingly and gently may point out blind spots in your life. But with all that in mind, as a general principle, don't become obsessed over finding your gift or gifts. Taking a course, taking a spiritual inventory, spiritual gift inventory, is, is often helpful, but you will find that your spiritual gifts will be revealed and developed primarily in the context of ministry itself. And so I just simply encourage you to just step out and begin to serve in the area you feel drawn to and trust the Lord to reveal to you how he has gifted to you in the process because he will. You know, the word gift in the Greek is the word charisma. And the root word for charisma is also the same word for joy. My observation is that far too many Christians are bored. Far too many Christians are going through the motions of their Christian faith because they have never experienced the joy of stepping out in faith in response to the call of God and being used by God to impact the life of someone who God brings across their path. Friends, when you decide to glorify God by serving Him and serving others, not only will your faith in God go to another level, but you will experience incredible joy. You know, you can always tell when someone serves out of guilt. They just do a lot of complaining, Every time you run into them, there's more grumbling and complaining. They're frown. They're counting the minutes. They're counting the days when they can just stop serving. But how different it is to know and to serve alongside people who serve not because they have to, but because they genuinely want to. They feel called of God to do so. Joy's written all over their face. And like an ever-ready battery, they just keep on keeping on with a big smile and no regrets. I'm going to close by introducing you to a few people who serve in our church in many different ways. The people who serve alongside them have told me these people just exude joy all the time. Just watch this.
1: It's very important to me because seven is important to God. So I feel this is something God has called every believer to do. Well, you know what? God has given me the, the ability and the love for other people. I always think about uh, uh, the amazing people who invested in me. I have that uh, desire that I need to invest to other people, especially our young generation.
2: I truly believe um, it's the Father's heart for us to reach out to the kids. Um, start young um, just investing in their lives.
1: God has equipped all of us with different graces, different gifts, different ability and the reason why he's giving us those talents, those gifts, those skills that we have is just so that we could um, bless other people with it. So That makes seven a huge thing for me. It's a calling from God.
2: I look at the people that have poured into my life, right? And especially those years transitioning from a teenager to an adult, I remember the influence that people have had in my life. And I feel like if I could do that, what people have done for me for one other person, what an incredible opportunity.
1: Yeah, you know, I see God all the time. I see the the smiles from the people. I see the the warmth from the people and the and the
2: concern and and you know, hey, didn't see you last week or whatever. And it's just the camaraderie and the and the people when their face lights up with what God's done in their lives. And I love seeing like helping them realize like that's a God moment. God was with you then. Mm-hmm. Well, we have made some really good friends
1: just by greeting and and seeing the same people and trying to identify who's new, because you can sort of see God has deepened a love for people in us. I see God everywhere when I am seven because um, I believe I am meeting a particular need. I am helping the body. And it's quite a blessing, it brings me a lot of joy when I see the kids I served with, or worked with in grade two, and now they are leaders. After two, three, four years, they are back with the yellow T-shirts. After another one or two years, they are back again with the blue T-shirt, and uh, seeing them grow in, in serving as well, it's a, it's a great joy. When God told us that there's a peace that transcends all understanding. He wasn't kidding. Like, it is for real. When I serve, when he asks me to do something and usually I battle it out a bit, I'm like, you want me to do what, sort of thing. And when I say yes to him, I get to know him deeper and that joy that comes with knowing God and that peace that comes after saying yes to him it gives me a lot of joy to see that I am a tool in God's end. God is the greatest employer you can have. You would, you would rather be employed by someone else. So when I serve, it gives me great joy that I could be useful in God's end. I'm someone God can use to meet a need in His within the body of Christ.
2: Sunday mornings is the only day of the week we don't have to wake our kids up. And we wake up Sunday mornings and there's like... They're practicing worship, and they're they're so excited. This is, like, definitely the best time of their week, I think. Yeah, but when you have the opportunity to serve others, and you're needed, and it's like, you know what, they're kind of counting on you, right? Like, there's a sense of responsibility and ownership, and it's a deeper connection to the church. I'm praying, I'm hoping that, you know, involvement in the church is harder to walk away from than just like, yeah, I attend on Sunday mornings, but... I'm not showing up anymore because I'm busy. And so I think when, when they can invest themselves into the church, it becomes more, like they become more a part of the body and they realize that they have a role to play. And the ultimate prayer that we have is that as they become adults and raise children of their own, that they will carry the faith and pass it down to their kids.
0: Don't they inspire you? Isn't that great? See the joy there. So those are just some examples um, of the joy and the fruit and and also the fulfillment that comes when you surrender all to Jesus and you follow him and his leading in your life. And so I ask you, what are you going to do with your life? What have you been doing with all that God has given to you, the time he's given to you, the, the resources he's given to you, the gifts and talents he's given to you? You have a choice. You can waste your life away in self-indulgence. Or you can say, Lord, here's my life. I offer it to you as a living sacrifice. It's not a perfect life, Lord. But here it is anyways. I give you my all. You know, I've lived a pretty active and I've experienced much of what this life has to offer. But I'm here to tell you that nothing, absolutely nothing nothing compares to the thrill of being used by God to directly or indirectly impact someone's life for eternity. There's absolutely nothing like it. And I want to tell you, that is what I wish for each of you. That's the kind of significance and fulfillment I wish for you, but more importantly, that God wishes for you. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes and ask, Lord, what are you saying to me? And what are you calling me to do about it? And after a few moments of reflection, we're going to close our service with a hymn of response.